magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. Welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. This is Robin Schiller. Warwick and I will be doing another question and answer session today, but it won't be as structured as the previous two. These questions will be random and answered in no particular order. We reached out to our fan page and closed Facebook group for questions, and we are ready to get rolling. So our first question comes from Heather. She says, I feel like I've asked too much of my pony lately, taken too much from the relationship bank, if you will. I'd be interested to hear your ideas on how to tip the balance back towards him. We spend a lot of time hanging out, but he's starting to act sour about being groomed or ridden. Great question, Heather. You know, and sometimes things like this, the answer is right there in front of us and we don't really see it. But I'm going to just read your question here again. It says, I feel like I've asked too much lately of my pony and I've taken too much from the relationship bank, if you will. And I'd be interested to hear your ideas on how to tip the balance back towards him. So basically, you think you've been asking for too much and not listening enough okay and you said we spend a lot of time hanging out okay so that's good that's that's adding to the relationship hanging out with anyone your horse or another human without asking anything of it is um good for the relationship but the last half of this last line but he's starting to act sour about being groomed and ridden and i and i think probably the you know the the big thing that sours relationships is uh, you know, not being heard, not being seen, not being recognized, not being listened to, you know, someone not reading the room, so to speak. And you said he started, and I'm going to break this down, he started to act sour about being groomed or ridden. Okay, so it sounds like, and I'm I'm guessing here, but it, it looks like it's pretty obvious to me, it sounds like he's sour about being groomed. And then you ignore that and go ahead and ride him. And I would say that is the, you know, that's the thing I would change right there. You know, I, I often, you know, make the analogy of, you know, some guy riding into Dear Abby. I was walking down the street the other day and I saw a beautiful girl and I went up and I started talking to her and she just ignored me. And so I asked her for a phone number and she ignored me. And then she, I asked for her address and she ignored me. And then I tried to kiss her and she punched me. How do I stop her from punching me? Um, you know what I mean? So if, you know, in, in what I do with horses, you know, let's say I don't take, I don't train outside horses anymore, but, um, you know, if I have a, if I'm either training a horse from the beginning or retraining a horse with an issue, as I work through all the steps in the process, I make sure they have a passing grade on the previous work. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's perfect. But it's not a fail either, you know. So, you know, let's say you fail the fifth grade, you're not going to go to sixth grade because sixth grade is going to be very, very difficult if you, uh, you know, if you don't understand fifth grade and you go to sixth grade, it's going to be difficult. But it doesn't mean you have to have 100%, you know, you don't have to be have an A plus in fifth grade in order to go to sixth grade. So, you know, it's, they've got to pass the previous work. And for me to ride a horse, all the other stuff leading up to it would have to have a passing grade. If you are grooming your horse and they 
are starting to, they're being sour about that. I'm not going to be writing. So I think, you know, your, your question, you, you, it's funny you ask the question, you're like, I want to get the relationship back. How do I go about doing that? You don't need, I don't think you need a technique to get the relationship back. You know, I think what you need to do is just be aware of that pass fail line, you know, and don't get on any particular day, every particular thing you do with a horse has a pass fail. You know, if I was to go out to the, you know, pasture to catch my horse, I mean, that doesn't happen here with ours, but let's say I go out to catch a horse and he turns and walks off, that's a fail. Let's say he turns and walks off and stops facing away from me. And now I could walk up and catch him. That's a fail for me. I'm not going to go, oh, well, that, was, that, that part was good. I'm going to put the halter on him and now we're going to go do something else. Um, you know, I, I, one time, I think I made a video one time. It might have been on YouTube. I can't remember. But I, I called it the dressage test of life. How, and I think I made it because I got a dressage horse in that was having a lot of difficulty under saddle, I think. And the, um, I think when the owner came, I said, you know, so do you have, um, you know, in your dressage, do you, you have a passing grade that you can, you know, you've got, to, you've got to get a certain grade before you can go up to the next level of test? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I have, a, I have a dressage test of life. I go in to catch him. If it's not a passing grade, we're not doing the next thing. And if it's not a passing grade, we're not doing anything. So that's, I would recommend that you, you know, as this, I don't know why it's a, it's a popular saying these days, but you've got to read the room. You know, if your horse acts sour about being groomed and then you hop on and ride them, you're telling them, I did not read the room in, in the first place. So that's the big thing. It's just, you know, don't ignore the little things in, in anything, you know, whether it's this or your flying lead change, you know, don't ignore the little things because the little things are what turn into to big problems. So I think, you know, just read the room and I think you should be okay. I'll just add, Heather, you're not alone. We get this all the time and it's, it's very common. It's very, very common to be overlooking things just for one reason or another. It's just interesting that we really don't do this anywhere else in our lives. You know, we, we wouldn't go out to our car and if it had a flat tire, wouldn't get in it and keep going. So, you know, don't feel bad. It's very common. And just yeah go back and and have a look at things maybe through a fresh perspective all right next question susan says back a year and a half ago i took your advice on the 50 yard trail ride but really the 50 foot trail ride but as my mare would not go out alone she acted scared neither spooked or locked up and wouldn't go forward we can now go much farther out but she still walks very hesitantly I'm picking up my body language and swinging my legs with each step, trying to give her a positive attitude without putting too much pressure that then she box again. Any suggestions for better forward motion? Great question, Susan. You know, this part, this, my answer to this probably has uh, two parts to it, but I want to talk about the previous question. I just talked about, you want to have, you want to have a, a part, you know, you want to have a good pass fail ratio you've got to you've got to be able to pass the previous test before you do the next thing and in here you said you did the 50, 50 foot trail ride and you said we can go out much farther now okay we can go much farther so that means you had a pass you know you had a pass on the 
the previous distances. And you said, but she still walks very hesitantly. Now, that's, the word still in there tells me that she was walking hesitantly in the previous work. Okay? We can go out much farther now, but she still walks very hesitantly. If she's walking hesitantly in the previous work, that's a fail. And so, you know, it's funny, this seems totally unrelated to the previous question, but it's exactly related to the previous question because what's happening is people are ignoring the fail and going further ahead. It's like, you know, like Robin said, you go, you get, your car's got a flat tire and you go, well, that's not that big a problem. It's, look, the car's there and the flat tire doesn't seem to be affecting anything right now, but then you drive 60 miles an hour down the freeway and it does affect you. And so just because something's not, necessarily affecting you at the time doesn't mean it won't turn into something so that's that's half of it and i'll go i'll go back into that in a minute but you you at the end of it you said i'm picking up my body language and swing my legs with each step trying to give her a positive attitude without putting too much pressure that she balks again that one of the principles of training is create a tool before you use a tool so you are trying to pick up your body language and swing your legs with each step in time with your horse to get your horse to walk faster out on this trail ride what I want to know, what I'd want to know is, is that perfect or pretty darn good at home before you go out in the trail ride? You know, so I think there's there's two separate issues here. But that that one there, I'd make sure that's got to work. That's a tool you need. I'd want to make sure that tool works before you add any more situations to it. For instance, going out for a trail ride. But let's go back to your fifty foot trail ride. You know, there's two versions of this thing that I've done over the years. You know, as I've changed how I go about things, I do it differently now and but i'll talk about the old one um and i don't know how i don't know which one you're doing but the old one was i would start let's say you're at home you'd say you're at at home and you want to go for a trail ride to let's say to the north just to make it easy so you start at home you point your horse to the north and you ask him to start walking without without holding them straight and you know you give them the opportunity to turn around and go home and, and if they go 10 feet and turn around and walk back to home you know, that's a fail. But when I would get home, I would probably, you know, when you, when you get back to where they come from, I'd probably pick up a trot, maybe trot a couple of little circles, trot back and forth along the fence, whatever, go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until, until they, their mind starts, to, their thought starts to change. Like, you know what, this isn't as much fun as I thought it would be. And when you start to feel that, you start to point them back out on the trot, you know, out to the north and you let go. And they might walk a little further than turn around and walk home. Yada, yada, yada. And you just get further and further each time. It's called the 50-foot trail ride. And, and this is very important. One of the reasons it's called the 50-foot trail ride, because if my horse will walk away from home perfectly on a perfectly loose rein, 50 feet, I'm not going to keep going. What I'm going to do right then is turn him around and go home. And right now I'm checking to see, is my horse walking the same speed going home as it was going out? Because if it walks faster going home than it was going out, that's going to tell me there's still an attraction there. And if I go far enough out the trail, I'm going to run into a problem. It's kind of like my car has this flat tire and, you know, whatever I'm just driving out the driveway, it doesn't seem to be a big problem. You know, but it's going to be a big problem when I get to 60 miles an hour. So it's very, you know, one of the reasons it's called the 50 foot trail ride. It's not about trail riding for 50 feet, but the exercise once I can get them to go out without turning around and coming back, after 50 feet, I will then 
turn around and come back. And right then I'm checking, like I said, to see is my homeward speed the same as my outward speed. And I think you may have missed that part of the 50 foot trail ride. Now, if that's not the trail, if that's not the one you're doing, the 50 foot trail ride 2.0 is a bit more about keeping them under threshold. So instead of riding them out till they, you know, turn around and go home, what I'll do is I'll start to ride away from home. And in this case, we're talking about north, you know, I'll start to ride and it might be four steps. And then I'll turn around and I'll, I'll walk back till I get to home. And then when I get home, I'll turn around and I'll walk back and I might walk out six steps and turn around and go back and then walk out eight steps and then turn around and come back home and then turn around and walk out 10 steps. And it's, it seems like it's not the same exercise because you're actually turning around before they turn back. But it almost is. If you, if you walk a horse four steps and then turn around and walk him back four steps, that's almost a circle. And then you go five steps and then back, that's almost a circle too. And then six steps and back. So you're almost doing little circles at home. And then as you get, you know, then you might go 10 steps, then you might go 15 steps before you turn around and come home. And what the turn around come home thing is, a lot of, a lot of horses going away from the place that they're comfortable for the first time, you know, on a trail ride like this, they can kind of get that, oh my God, what if I'm going away and never coming back? You know, it's, it's a bit of that. What if I'm separated forever? What if this is it? And so it's kind of overcoming that. It's kind of telling them, hey, we're just going to go over here, but then we're going to come back to your comfortable place. Then we're going to go out. We're going to come back to your comfortable place. We're going to go out and come back to your comfortable place. But in that one, if that's the one you're doing, the same rule applies as the, the previous one, is when you turn around and come home, you're going to be mentally checking, is my horse walking much faster coming home than they are going out? Because if they are, you, that's a fail. They are not ready to increase the distance. Does that make sense there? That tells you that they're, they're not comfortable about going out and you know there's a little bit of anxiety about coming home. So it's really about, once again, it's just about, I think, try to think about that pass-fail thing. And you know, I, in the past, I have said to people, you know, it's, it's, this is, the, the, the first step's got to be perfect before you do the second step. But these days, I'm, I'm talking more about a, you know, kind of like a pass-fail thing because the reason I say things have to be perfect before you go to the next step is because most people really don't want to do that much work. And so they're kind of like, yeah, that's good enough, and off they go. Um, but every once in a while, I'll run into someone at a clinic who, you know, has a very analytical mind they're they're very type a they've got to kind of do it right sort of thing you know a lot of maybe a lot of engineers maybe have that that mindset and they want to do it so perfect they drive their horses a little insane so i once i started meeting a few people like that um and there's no, that's no judgment i mean that's how they're wired everybody's wired different but i was i was you know i'm a teacher i'm an educator so i've got to get people to get it and telling people it's got to be perfect before it goes on covers most people but then when you get the engineer types, it kind of makes it hard for their horses because they want to make it too perfect. So now it's like, you know, it's a, give yourself a pretty good pass rate, you know, whether it's 85%, 90%, whatever, you know. But make sure you have a, a you know, set your limit for your pass-fail rate. I'd say if you tend to be an underachiever, set it pretty high. If you tend to be an overachiever, like an engineer type, set it a bit low just to balance yourself out. But the big thing here is, if your horse is going forward hesitantly, you are not, when you said, we can go out much further now, but she still walks hesitantly, that still tells me she was walking hesitantly at the start, and hesitantly at the start tells you you are failing and you're not ready to go any further.
This is really cool use of the principles of training. You know, those two questions seem totally unrelated. However, the answer was, you know, was a principle of training. They need to know the answer before you ask the question. So that was pretty cool. All right. Question three, Lizzie, what are your thoughts on horses cribbing? What would you restrict? Would you restrict their habit or try to control it somehow? Or would you let the horse crib as much as he wants? Great question, Lizzie. You know, my thoughts on this, like many things, have changed over the years. And as the saying goes, when you know better, you do better. And in the past, I have used um, cribbing collars to try to stop horses from cribbing. But one of the reasons we would do it back then is because there was a bit of a, you know, wives' tale in the scientific community, I think, that cribbing can cause colic. Well, they've since proven that cribbing does not really cause colic. And you think about Think about cribbing it is a coping mechanism. And that coping mechanism, if you take away that coping mechanism, the underlying anxiety causing that coping mechanism is still there. And you may actually get, you know, a, a different and maybe more problematic for your horse or problematic for you coping mechanism. But yeah, the, the science these days says that it's... um. The science says that it's not, uh, you know, it doesn't cause, it doesn't cause uh, colic. And the other, th- the other thing is, people think, well, if horses learn to crib off other horses, but uh, we've got one of my horses, Bundy, who I think he's ten now, isn't he, Roman? Um, nine. He's nine. Uh, Bundy, as a two-year-old, he was, you know, he was kind of loose in a, a round pen and ran around and was bucking and carrying, carrying on, and he. He uh, kicked the fence and he shattered his P2, you know, which is bone in his foot. And so we did surgery on that and they plated and screwed the, the crack in his P2 and then they fused P1 and P2 and then they put him in a cast for three or four months and he had to be in a stall in this cast for three or four months. Couldn't even be hand walked, couldn't be taken out. And so... And Bundy's a pretty active-minded sort of a horse, busy-minded sort of a horse. So he learnt to crib in there. And while he was ever in a stall, you know, I, I, this is when I was training horses for a living, in the, and we lived in town, so the only access to places to keep a horse I had was, was in stalls. We'd turn them out as much as we could, but they basically lived in a stall. And, and um, you know, they say that in, to help with cribbing, you should be able to give them the three Fs, you know, freedom, forage, friends. So freedom is... You know, they're not stuck in a small space. They can move around like in a pasture. Forage is having access to 24-hour-a-day forage and friends. So they're in a herd with other horses. And, and, you know, we've had our place here for six years now, and we've got our horses out in pasture with each other, and they've got slow slow feeder hay nets. And so they have all those um, three Fs, and he still cribs to this very day. Uh and it's been six years. But the thing is, like I said, science says they don't, you know, colic, colic's not a problem from the cribbing. And, and the other old wives' tale is they teach other horses to do it. None of the other horses he's lived with in that time, and we've kind of put different horses, you know, there's been different combinations of all our horses together at times. None of the other horses even look like learning to crib from him. So I would say these days um, ignore it. And I, I really think it's, Cribbing is, is, is a great practice in acceptance because if you're saddling your horse up and he's tied there and he's cribbing on something or other, 
you want to tell them to knock it off or just, you know, kind of annoys you. And it's just one of those things you just have to learn to just zen out and uh, go with the flow. Next question from Aaron is, do you have any tips for gaining confidence in the saddle? Hi, Aaron. Great question. I do have some tips for gaining confidence in the saddle, and I've already talked about them in this episode of the podcast. I've already gone over the, the tips to help for confidence, and you're probably thinking, How in the hell? you didn't talk about tips for confidence. The first one was about a horse starting to act sour and being groomed, and the second one was about trail riding, and the third one was about cribbing. But those first two things where I talked about that pass-fail ratio, you know, when I have, if I'm starting a horse under saddle, I go through a process and I, I have a pretty high pass-fail ratio for my, for my horses, you know, for horses I'm working with. And what gives me confidence riding a horse is knowing that everything up to this point has, has passed all the tests. And those tests are like, you know, they're like a crystal ball. They're like the magic eight ball that you shake. You know, they tell you what may happen in the future. And um, many years ago, I mean, th I think this was back at least 10 years ago, I was presenting at a horse expo in Australia and I was asked by this lady to um, be interviewed for a blog that she, was, she has online somewhere. And one of her questions was, so, you know, because at, at the time I was, you know, training um, outside horses and I was having a lot of problem horses that come in, horses that bark, horses that rear, horses that bolt. And these are big horses too, you know, like warm bloods and stuff. And um, this lady said, so what we want to know, because most of my readers are kind of, you know, your middle-aged horsewoman type things. How do you go about being brave when you're, when you're you know, when you, when, you get the, when you start riding those bucking, bolting, rearing horses, how do you go about being brave? And I said, hey, I'm not brave. I'm thorough. If you are thorough, you don't have to be brave. And this is what I'm talking about here. You know, it's that having that pass-fail thing, having it make sure they pass all the tests leading up to this point um, is what makes me, doesn't make me brave, it makes me confident. It makes me, you know, the, the, I think the biggest thing to overcome fear is knowledge. Now, if you have, that's that's from the, because I, I think I, I see a lot of people riding horses and I, they're, they're not confident because they know something's probably going to go wrong. You know what I mean? Um, I, you know, I don't have a, a good, I don't have a good advice for that except go back and get your pass fail thing to where it works and you won't have to have those worries. But some people, so that's the, that's basically the horse side of it. If, if, if your horse is complete, you know, that this horse is completely safe, you've taken care of that, and then you have any tips, you know, then you have um, confidence issues in the saddle, and it's all you, then it's not a horse problem. Then you've got to go and find someone like, you know, two of my previous podcast guests are horse riding mental coaches, Jane Pike and Barbara Schulte. You've got to find someone to help you with that, that side of it. Or... Maybe it's the riding part of you, like, oh, I'm not very confident because I don't ride very well, and if my horse jumps sideways, I might fall off. Well, first take care of the horse jumping sideways, okay? Make, make sure that your pass fails very high and you've been through all the process and you've trained your horse. But if that's the case, you might want to find somebody who does um, lessons on a lunge line to where they teach you how to have a better seat. I mean, there's a lot goes into 
um, being confident on a horse. I don't, you know, I've been riding horses all my life, so I don't have to think about the, oh, is my seat okay sort of thing. I don't have to, th- I don't have to think about that part of it. All, the only thing personally I have to worry about is my pass-fail ratio. If, if, if that's, you know, if it's about being, if I'm not confident on a horse, um, that's telling me that I know the pass-fail ratio is not, not, not very good, but that's, that would be my, um, my suggestion for confidence under saddle. For, for me, it's first making sure you know your horse is perfectly safe. You know, and that's, I'm not saying your horse is bomb-proof. I'm saying your horse, you know, in, you've done all the tests and in most situations, it's going to be fine. There's always the anomaly, but, but they're never going to be perfect. But take care of much of that as possible. Then if, once you, the horse is out of the way and that's not a problem, then you've got to look into ways to help with your part of the problem. You know, Warwick said he's been riding all his life, so he doesn't have to think about the riding. And same with me. You know, I've been riding before I could even walk. But I will tell you, as I've gotten older, you know, when I really think about what I'm doing, like running down at high speeds and stopping, you know, a horse, if I get too inside my head, there can be some fear there. You know, as I get older, the fear, you know, I know if I fall, I'm not going to bounce like I used to. So, yeah, I get that, too. But I also do believe that you have to listen to your intuition. Obviously, you have to do what work says. And, you know, you have to have those pass fail uh, ratios and thresholds. But also don't forget to listen to your intuition. You know, don't let anybody else make decisions for you. You need to be making the decisions for you and what's right for you and your horse. So there's that. All right. Next question from Yolandi. How long do you think it usually takes a horse to get better with their PTSD? Hi, Yolandi. That question is a bit like how long is a piece of string? You know, I'm sure if you asked a human therapist, how long does it take a human to get over their PTSD? They're not going to be able to give you a a time and a date. And I really think with horses, we all tend to have, or most a lot of people have that, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen sort of a thing? They want to know, like, is it 30 days? Is it 60 days? Is it 90 days? Like, when, 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 when? And you just, you know, this is the journey on podcast and unraveling a horse's PTSD, PTSD or, or just training a horse, it is a journey and it happens when it happens. So, I, you know, it's, it's really, I think it's really more about your, you know, there's no, there's no number, but the, the, the fastest it can happen, I would say, is when you get rid of any expectations of it happening. You know, when you focus on process and not outcome when you focus on you know when you're in the moment you're not you're not worried about what it's going to get you in the end you know i sometimes quote um you know one of the one of the most spiritual of the ancient hindu practices is something called karma yoga and karma yoga is focusing on a task with no thought as to the outcome of that task that's kind of what you got to do you got to be able to just be whatever you know you got to work what's in front of you if you think about the first question today what i do with my horse when he acts sour about being groomed and ridden that's not being in the moment (laughs) you know what i mean if they're being sour about being groomed then you go ahead and get on and ride them that's not being in the moment so you know it's just about interacting with them at this point in time i think if you can just get rid of the the timeline um out of your head about anything the timeline that the time it takes to get there which whatever it is whether it's solving this ptsd thing or whatever it's going to be a whole lot shorter if you just 
forget trying to get to the end and just work on what's in front of you right now. All right. The next question is from Josian, who asks, do you at some stage stop the groundwork? If so, when? Great question, Josian. And it's funny, you know, the last two podcasts that we did that we did this question and answer thing, we kind of grouped the questions into broad subjects. And um, we didn't for this one. We're just taking, taking random questions here. But the thing about this one is, at some stage, do you stop the groundwork? Yes. And if so, when? When that path fail works. And, and what am I, you know, so let's say I'm going to start a young horse under saddle, okay? Let's say I'm, I'm doing the first day of groundwork. And I mean groundwork where I'm asking for something. These days, I, I'm really big into relationship before horsemanship. So I, I find that the training goes so much better if you don't just show up and start asking for things. You, that you, you know, you connect with the horse, you communicate how aware you are different things but by the time I come by the time I get to the training let's say the first day I'm working on something and it takes me 45 minutes to get because I, I work on such small things that initially you work on such small things that you can um, you can teach them a new concept in one session because it's such a small thing you're not asking for big things you know some people think oh you can't teach you know you can't teach them to do something in one lesson Yes, that they don't know how to do. Yes, you can if you're working on small enough things. But let's say whatever it is, I'm, whatever I teach them the first day. Let's say I'm teaching them the alphabet. Let's, let's go with the alphabet. How's that sound? The first day, it might take me 45 minutes to get A correct. And, and, and the, what, what I mean when I say get A correct, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, teaching the alphabet, is when I say, what's the first letter of the alphabet? And they go, A. They don't go, um... Let me think about it. Uh, it could be B, it could be, uh, is it A? That, you know, that's, that's not that they know it. That's like they're, they're just guessing. So let's say it takes me 45 minutes to where I ask the question and they give me the answer. And they can do it. Perfect. Good. I put them away. We're done for the day. The next day when I get them out, at the end of the first day, they knew A. When I asked it, they could say, yes, A. The second day when I get them out, I don't go, well, my horse knew A yesterday. Today I'm going to start with B because the only reason I'd start with B with B is because uh, on B is because they know how, they know A, they know the first thing. But I don't assume they know it from the day before, so I'm going to work on A again. And it might take me 15 minutes to get to where A is as good as it was at the end yesterday. Then I'm going to start working on B and B might take me, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, till they can say A and then they can say B. Okay, so they know A and B. Put them away. Third day, get them out. I'm going to check on A again. And it might take me five minutes to reestablish A. Then it might take me, you know, 15 minutes to get B back again. But B is usually related to something they learn in A. Um, and then it might take me half an hour to get C to work. So at the end of the third day, they know A, B, and C. And the fourth day, I get them out. Then I start with A and that might not need a refresher and B might need 10 minutes of a refresher and C might need 10 minutes of a refresher and so then I can do A, B and C. So now I might add D. Um, and like I said, you, at, at this point in time, you're teaching such small things, it's, it's usually not a big deal. Now what happens as you go along is you'll get to like, maybe get to F and you might stay on F for a week before you even add G, depend, you know, depends on where you're up to. 
But the, the big thing is when, let's say you're adding F, they can't forget A. That's the most important thing. So every day I get them out, I'll say, okay, you know A, yep, you know B, yep, you know C. So you're not drilling them on this stuff. If they know it, you just go to the next thing. But you do ask that question and say, do you still remember this part? Because that's probably the, um, the, probably the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes I think people make is they'll teach their horse something and then the next day they teach them something else and then they teach them something else. And by the time they get to D, the horse has forgotten A and B. And they need to remember the whole thing. But getting to when do I, when do I not do groundwork anymore? When it's pretty all you know, it's got a very high pass-fail ratio. So I get them out and I'll go, can you do the first, can you do A, can you do B, yep, C, yep, D, yep, E, F, G, whatever it is up to, and including the riding point, you know, or the, or the saddling point. You know, let's say I've been through all the groundwork and they're good at the groundwork and then I start to introduce the saddle. So now we're back to the beginning. Every day I'm going to work through A, B, C, D, E, F, G with the saddle on. I don't go, okay, now I'm just running around, I'm just doing stuff with the saddle on. I'm going to go back and make sure they can do all the same things with the saddle they could without the saddle. And then, you know, until all that's got a very high pass-fail ratio. Then when you start riding them, I will still keep doing that groundwork. And I, and I, I probably usually don't stop doing the groundwork until I have, so I'm going to ride them in the round pen for, you know, maybe four days, maybe three days, maybe six days, depending on the horse. Um, there's no, don't think any of those numbers is relevant. It's, it's however long it takes to where I feel they're ready to go outside in the big arena. I will probably ride them in the big arena. And if it's, prob if it's not problematic, you know, if, if you take them out there and ride them around and it all goes quite well, I will probably do that still do the groundwork for three or four days before I take them out in the big arena. So every day, even though yesterday I rode them in the big arena for the first time and they were good, I'll still go back to the round pan, go through everything, do the saddling in there, then uh, take them, you know, ride them in there, then go out in the arena. And if that's non-problematic for three or four days, the, the um, groundwork, all the groundwork and the saddling and then the riding in the round pan and they, you know, they go, then I go out to the arena. If all that's non-problematic for three or four days, then what I'll probably do is instead of riding them in the round pen first, I'll take them in the arena, go through the groundwork real quick. You know, just, can you do this? Can you do that work? That work? Okay, jolly good. Put the saddle on, do a little bit more, hop on. And then I just slowly, slowly phase it out. You know, I, I basically phase out having them in the round pen at all. I don't need that, really don't need the round pen. The round pen's just a, you know, I don't need the round pen for the groundwork at all. You know, it's not really, I mean, not really using the round pen for the groundwork. But I start in there because that's where I'm going to start with the saddle. And that's where I'm going to start riding. So what I'm not going to do is do all the groundwork somewhere else and then one day lead him in the round pen and then hop on him and they've not been in there before. Does that make sense? You're familiarizing them with the environment that you're going to ride them in. And, but, you know, then I just skip the round pen and then eventually I skip the groundwork. And, you know, I remember an old... Remember this question was asked of Buck Brenneman on, I saw it in a movie or in an article or something, and he said, well, they said, how much groundwork do you do? And he said, well, initially you do a lot of groundwork, but eventually your groundwork is what happens between you and the horse between the time you catch them to the time you get on them. That's, that, that there um, becomes your groundwork. 
I guess I shouldn't have introduced this podcast as random questions because it's turning out to be the pass fail uh, podcast. That's great. All right. Our next question from Laura. I would like to learn about leading a horse that would like to rush past you. Hi, Laura. So what do you want? I'd like to learn about leading a horse that would like to rush past you. You know, my first, uh, what I've got to do is ask some questions about you first, because the thing is, what I don't want to do is give you a technique to do to a horse to solve the problem they have if you are the one that's causing the problem. And a lot of times with horses, I mean, you know, think about this. No horse knows how to rush past you when you lead them if they've never been led. So they had to pick it up somewhere. You know, you, you, first time you put a halter and the lead rope on a horse and you, they, they don't just walk off and rush past you. So a lot of times, you know, horses are very good at anticipating things. And a lot of times, um, you know, the way we do things in a certain order tends to um, have them anticipate things. You know, so if I see this question comes up a lot with horses that may be boarded in, in Australia, you would call that adjusted. And in uh, in England, you'd call that on livery, in places to where the horse lives in a stall and someone who doesn't own the horse, who is just doing a job, gets the horse out, takes them out to a pasture, turns them out, you know, those horses tend to get really, really rushy. And it's all anticipation. They know what's coming. You're going to put the halt on them. I'm going to lead you over there in a straight line and then put you in there and then let go. And pretty soon the horse is on autopilot. Um, so you know, a lot of times it's how we handle them that causes that. Now, if, if this horse is a horse that's new to you and you didn't cause that, well, then, you know, it's, then you don't have to think about your part of it. All you have to think about doing is solving it. But the, the solving for that is, is pretty simple. Any horse that wants to rush past me thinks he knows where he's going, okay? And so if they rush past me, I'll just turn around and go the other way. And when they rush past me, I'll just turn around and go the other way. And when they rush past me, I'll just turn around and go the other way. And you just keep going the other way until they go, hang on, I have no clue. I thought I knew where we were going. I get no clue where we're going. I better wait and see where we're going to go. Because sometimes we go that way, but then sometimes we go that way, but and sometimes we go back that way. And, and so, they just, so it's really about, you know, horses that every problem we have with horses has to do with their mental state, where their thoughts are, what their thoughts are. And in this case, the horse's thoughts just get ahead of where you, they're not they're not, they're not being present where their feet are and they're not being present where your feet are. They're, they're thinking way ahead. So all, really all you're doing when you turn and go the other way is interrupting their thoughts, which is totally different than just slowing them down. Like you see a lot of people leading a horse that wants to rush past you and the horse is in a hurry and the person's got to hold the lead rope just under the chin and they're pulling back, slowing the horse down so it doesn't keep going any, so it doesn't go faster, but they keep going in the same direction. So you're slowing the feet down, but if you look at that horse's ears, that horse's ears are still pricked on their destination, and you don't even, you know, it's like, mum, hey mum, hey mum, hey mum, hey mum, hey mum, and mum doesn't even, you know, stop a conversation sort of thing. It's a little bit like that. It's all about um, changing where their focus is. So it's everything's about change of focus, really. But uh, yeah, that that's the big thing is. Make sure you're not creating the problem. And one of the ways you create the problem is by trying to slow a horse down, you know, without changing their thoughts. If you slow them down and as you slow them down, their thoughts come back to you, well, then you could probably go again. But if you're, you know, if you just got a hold of that lead rope and you pull and pull and pull and the only thing you were doing is manhandling a 1,200 pound animal, 
it's not going to go anywhere. You know, the whole, I always say the horse controls the horse. You know, you don't control the horse. And so if you're trying to control the horse like that, you're not getting a men- the mental change you're going to need for that horse to, to stop rushing past you. So the, the big thing is, is um, make sure you're not so causing the problem and the other part is just change their thoughts. Just make it random. Break it into pieces. You know, do different things until they, they stop thinking too far ahead and start being a bit more present. I also like your leading with energy exercise. Um, we have some videos on the subscription of actually me doing the exercise and doing a lot of wrong things. So it's really educational for people. But um, for those horses that want to rush past you, um, the pivoting part of leading with energy really, really works well, I have found. Okay, Julie wants to know, I would love to get some guidance regarding young horses and allowing them to be curious and explore versus standing still or sticking with you when being led. I just purchased a three-year-old Dutch warm blood, and when I am walking down the barn aisle, she often wants to explore tack trunks, buckets, blankets, and other items that are lying about. I struggle with knowing when to stop and let her explore these things in which she is showing interest. Or should I just ask her to stick with me as we walk down the aisle? Additionally, I do not cross-tie her in the aisle for grooming or tacking, per Warwick Schiller. Once again, she often wants to explore things around her in the aisle rather than standing still. Any guidance would be greatly appreciated. Great question, Julie. You know, I have this thing called STTDP. I'm not sure if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's, it's short for stick to the damn plan. And I was doing a clinic in Australia about 10 years ago and there was a, a lady in the clinic and I was saying, you know, every step of the process is important because it, it provides the answer to something you're going to do later on and if you don't do this thing the thing that you're going to do later on is is quite going to be problematic you know you can have problems with it and this one lady in the clinic said yeah that's my personal trainer has this saying and and, uh, it's called stick to the damn plan I thought oh that's that's cool she says because you know he'll say you got to do this and this and this and I'll kind of choose the ones I kind of want to do and he said, no, no, this is not going to work if you don't stick to the damn plan. And I remember a, um, a place I used to do clinics in Australia, the lady that owned that, she told me that she one time, she had problems with the horse and I forget what it was. And she went to this horseman years before and, you know, she'd go for lessons and he kind of gave her this piece of paper and he said, so what you need to go home, you need to work on these things. And, and it had this big list of stuff, you know. And that'll fix your problems anyway. So she went home and she worked on the list of things and called him up six months later and said, I still have the same problem. She said, he said, well, come over for a lesson. So she goes over there for a lesson and he said, okay, so, so this list here, so all these work well, she goes, no, 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 I've done that one and I've done that one and I've done that, you know, she, she'd chosen the ones in there she'd like to do. And it's, it's a bit like, uh, I don't know, healthy eating, you know, you know, you don't go to the store and go. Nope, lettuce, I don't like lettuce, don't like vegetables, oh, beer, I like beer, uh, I'll have a lot of that, I'll have a lot of chocolate, I like chocolate, nope, none of that, you know. You've got to do all the parts, there's got to be some balance to it. And in, it's funny, Julie, in the end of this thing, you said, um, about, or oh, asking her to stick with me as I walked down the aisle, additionally, I do not cross-tie her in the aisle for grooming or tacking per WS, meaning, that's what she said, Robin to my name, but as basically as per my instructions so if we go so you're saying that you're following my instructions because you don't cross tire on the aisle for grooming she's got to stand there 
That's correct. But just like I talked about a minute ago in the question about when do you stop doing groundwork, this is a green, you know, you said you've got a young horse, um, three-year-old Dutch Warmblood young horse. You are trying to saddle the horse in the barn, okay? I don't get to saddling the horse in the barn until, or in a place to where there's a lot of distractions, you know, things like that, until the horse saddles perfectly well in the round pen. Does that make sense? So this is another one of those pass-fail things. It's so funny. This has ended up being the, the you know, the pass-fail um, podcast. But yeah, you know, and think about in the round pen, there's, there's some distractions, there's things off in the distance, but there's nothing to walk off and sniff. And I would not be trying to saddle this horse inside until this horse saddles perfectly well outside. Okay. I wouldn't be saddling a horse anywhere in a place that they can't move around if they need to in a safe manner. So imagine the barn aisle is probably concrete or something like that. You know, I'm always going to saddle them in the safest place possible. And the safest place possible is not tied up because you never want to tie them up saddled. Uh, you never want to tie them up to saddle them until they're perfectly, perfectly good at saddling and never really move when you saddle them. Um, but if they need to move around, they can. And, uh, you know, the, what you're basically doing here is setting it up to where, Julie, you're making it hard for yourself because you're trying to do a lot of things at once. I'm not sure how your horse saddles, but I do know that your horse can't walk down the barn aisle without sniffing stuff. So you know that's a problematic place to try to get your horse to saddle. Does that make sense? I mean, when I think when you think about it like that, some of this stuff is, I don't know, common sense, but it's, you know, basically I'm really big on making sure I do all the steps and, and doing things in such a way that I'm setting myself up for failure I mean, setting myself up for success, not setting myself up for failure, setting, you know, setting it up. So, you know, there's, there's the, the, the saying, make the wrong thing hard and the right thing easy. The saying is really about making the right thing easy. Okay. And in this case, making the right thing easy would be standing and working on the saddling in a place where the horse doesn't have too many distractions until that's perfect. You know what I mean? Um, but then I wouldn't be working on trying to saddle the horse in the barn aisle until all the sniffing and, and um, you know, investigating stuff has gone away. So I think it's fine to let your horse to sniff and investigate stuff. But if you, um, you know, that, that, that's good. But then they've got to be able to stand still. So what I would do is, and I know, um, I think I had this problem with Bundy. But what I would do is just, you know, once she investigates stuff, and okay, it's fine. She doesn't need to keep investigating it. Just put her in the middle of the barn aisle and drop the lead rope on the ground and just step back. And if she wanders off, just take her and put her back. And just when she wanders off, take her and put her back. When she wanders off, take her and put her back. Basically, it's, it's just basically a, a ground tying technique. And it's, it's boring and it's repetitive and whatever. But, you know, at some point in time, they've got to be able to, to um, stand there on their own before you ever thought about, okay, now I want them to stand there on their own while they groom them and I want them to stand there on their own while they saddle them. You know, these are all separate, separate things. And, and I'm really, really big on teaching everything separately, whether it's on the ground or under saddle, I'm going to teach everything they need to know separately from each other. Like under saddle, you know, I'm going to work on the lateral flexion. Let's say I'm working on the lateral flexion on the left. All that is, is can you respond to my left rein at a standstill? 
And can you respond correctly to my left rein at a standstill? If I'm working on the lateral flexion on the right, it's the same thing. Can you respond to my right rein on its own at a standstill? And then I'm going to start working on tracking those hind, those, you know, another, untracking those hind feet with my leg, you know, like you might call a disengage. Okay. That's, if I'm going to do that with my left leg, I am working on, can you respond to my left leg on its own? And then I'm going to work on, can you respond to my right leg on its own? And then eventually I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to put both legs on and expect that horse to go forward. Okay, so now I'm adding two things together, but I've created those two things separately. So you think about standing in the barn aisle and saddling your horse are two different things that you're trying to get your horse to do at once. There's always a, something you can break it down to before that. Okay, so under saddle, like I said, I had two legs. They go forward. But they've got to know how to, re- make, to have, give me a response with that inside hind foot to one leg and the other leg before I'm going to do that. That's how, that's make it easy. You know, that's not about making, what makes it hard is when you skip those steps. Um, you know, if you skip steps, you're making the hard thing easy. You're making it easy to get it wrong. I'm trying to make it easy to get it right. I did a clinic in Washington um, a couple of weeks ago and there was a really lovely lady in the clinic who's a dressage rider. and you know, with her, a lot of things I, I, talking about, say, groundwork and stuff, I was relating it back to dressage. And I was saying, well, you don't teach this in dressage before you teach this because this is the stepping stone to that. She's like, oh, yeah, 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 I get that, I get that, I get that. And I was riding a horse, I was talking about teaching a horse to slow off your seat or slowing down off your seat. And I said, and she was not in this session, she was sitting there watching, and I said to her, you're a dressage rider, how do you slow your horse off your seat? And she said, well, I, um, I use my seat and my legs. And I said, mm, actually, I don't think you do. And she goes, no, no, that's what I do. I said, so the reins are completely loose. She goes, well, well no, the reins aren't loose. And I'm like, yeah, so you think you are teaching the horse to slow off your seat. I mean, you think you are slowing your horse off the seat, but it requires other elements. And I said, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing at all. But I've had a number of dressage people at clinics that say they slow their horse off their seat. And I said, okay, let's see it. And they've done it from a walk, trot, and a canter. And I go, okay. Then I pull the bridle off. I said, I'm going to pull the bridle off you, and you're going to walk down the arena and get your horse to stop off your seat. And the ones who allow me to pull the bridle off find that they can't even stop their horse off their seat at a walk, uh, let alone a canter. Anyway, this is not picking on what anybody else does. What I'm saying here is when I teach a horse to slow off my seat, I use my seat, not my seat. I mean, you've got to use something else. You know, you've got to use something else to do it too. But I don't have the reins in both hands quite firm and then sit with my seat and kind of lean back where it actually makes the reins go tight because what you're doing there is you're applying your seat and your rein at the same time. What I'll do is I'll be trotting around on a horse, you know, my let's say my horse can bend to a stop really well. And for me, a bend to a stop is not a one rein stop. I think I've talked about this before. You know, you're going to take your hand out to the side and it should be a really good balanced downward transition. They should go, do, 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 if they're trotting, they should go, do, 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 walk, 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 stop. And it's a very balanced thing. It's not an off-balanced thing. So it should make your horse biomechanically better, not worse. Um, you know, as you take your hand out to the side for the start of it, they should bend in the middle and that inside hind foot will step up underneath them. 
So I've got a good downward transition. My horse will go trot, 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 walk, 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 stop. By this bend to a stop. And then all I do is I trot along and I'm trotting, 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 trotting. I saw him doing a rising trot. And then I'll sit and just really relax and breathe out. And then bend him to a stop. I don't do them both at the same time. I sit. And of course they don't stop initially. And then I bend him to a stop. But you, you repeat that every time you want to come to a stop for six weeks. And pretty soon you can be trotting along and you sit and brrrr, you get this really good downward transition to a stop. And this, you know, what I'm talking about here is not about downward transitions or stopping off your seat or whatever. What I'm saying is I teach that seat on its own. I don't use my seat, my legs, my reins to do the downward transition. Later on, you can do all sorts of things. You can add these things together. But I'm very, very particular about teaching everything separately i said it before i'm not you know i'm not a really technical rider like some people but i can get my horse to do some pretty decent things i think because i make sure all these individual parts work really well and you know this whole saddling the horse saddling the green horse in the in the middle of the barn aisle where the horse has all sorts of distractions we don't know if we can saddle the horse when there's no distractions that's and, and the horse can't stand still in the middle of the barn aisle anyway, you know, that's problematic. You want to break that down and make sure your horse can be saddled quite perfectly well in a place where there's not a lot of distraction. I'm not saying remove all distractions and put them in a, you know, a big box where they can't see anything, but you're in the round pen. There's, there's not, you know, there's nothing to wander off and sniff or whatever. And also make sure your horse can stand still in that barn aisle without the saddling and without walking off and sniffing things. And then by the time you want to work on saddling your horse in the barn aisle with all the distractions around, it will be error-free. You know, years ago I was training horses out of a, a facility not far from here, and um, the lady that owns the place had a big jumping horse, and I forget why she wanted me to work with him. She was having some sort of a problem, not a big problem, I don't remember, under saddle. I'm glad it wasn't big because he was about 18 hands high. But um, she, I went, you know, I went through all the groundwork stuff and basically started him again and, you know, was riding him around. But one day she saw me get on him at the mounting block and I, I got him up beside me in the mounting block and the reins are completely loose and I hopped on and, and she said, wow, you must have done a lot of work at the mounting block. And she said, I said, why is that? She goes, oh, well, normally you've got to have two grooms hold him at the mounting block while you get on because he won't stand still. And I said, no, he stood still from the, he stood still from the first day I got on him. I, I'd never had a mounting problem. Why? I never had a mounting problem. She goes, well, that's crazy. He's always had a, he's always had a mounting problem. And I said, well, you know, I noticed on the ground that he was very flinchy to touch on his sides. And also when I went through the work in the round pen where I get up on the fence and have them come up beside me so I make sure they're comfortable with me above them without being on them, he was very problematic with that too. And so you think about it, this horse has had a, a lifelong problem uh, at the mounting block where he needs two grooms to hold him to stand still to get on. But it wasn't a problem at all because I solved the two parts of that. He doesn't, apparently your legs touching his side kind of bother him a bit, you know. So he was, and I'm sure that would have been part of the whatever problem he had under saddle. And so I got him comfortable about things, you know, touching his sides. But I also got comfortable about things being above him. And she didn't mention that they had a mounting block problem and, and I didn't even know there was a mounting block problem because it got taken care of 
you know, in in the process. So that's, you know, it's so important everything has a, a pass-fail thing. Like they've got to be able to pass all the tests because you cannot, you cannot prepare your horse for everything. You don't have to prepare your horse for everything in life. It's just like when, when you're learning the, all you need to do is to learn the alphabet and the numbers from zero to 10, or to zero to nine really, and everything you will do, whether it's quantum physics or whatever after that, will just be a combination of all those two things. But if you don't know the numbers zero to nine, and you don't know what order they go in, and you don't know the alphabet, n- nothing works after that. So it's, you know, I, I, you know, when I get problem horses in, I don't ever address the problem. I just go back and work through the beginning and, and it's, you know, horses are horses and they're all amazing creatures and none of them are out to get us and want to be bad. They just have sometimes a lack of preparation for what they're being asked to do. And I always just go back from the beginning, go through all the preparation. And, and it seems that the, the big bad problems all seem to go away. So that's where we're going to end it for today. We got a lot of questions and, you know, some of them are just not easily answered. But then again, they probably are easily answered. And like Warwick said today, you know, most of the answers to these complex problems that have all these details to them can be solved by just going back to the basics and getting the basics right and, you know, making sure you have a good foundation and, you know, using your pass-fail, you know, using the principles of training, really. So perfecting the basics allows you to do the big things a lot better and Um, Yeah, I just think, you know, we get a lot of questions that have a lot of details and, and they seem like really big problems. But if you really just do what he was talking about in all of the answers to these is break it down. How can you break it down? How can you go back and, and start over and, and perfect the basics? So, so thank you for joining us on the journey on podcast. Warwick doesn't like to do the advertising, but, you know, I'm his biggest fan and I think everybody should be watching the videos. So if you aren't a subscriber, we have a seven-day free trial at videos.warwickschiller.com and we would really enjoy and love for you to uh, try it out. All of the answers to these questions reside in the online video library. And if you love this podcast, please give us a rating. It really helps with all the analytics and gets it in front of more people. I think shares do the same thing. Downloads really matter, um, but reviews really matter as well to all the ag- algorithms out there. So um, if, you, if you like what you're hearing, please pass it along, give it a rating, give it a review. We would really, really appreciate it. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.